Good morning, everyone. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. This morning, we're going to look at three verses, uh, 21, 22, and 23. Uh, but before we jump right into the heart of those, I want to do a quick review of where we've come from. And the reason why I'm doing this is because uh, oftentimes what will happen in an epistle of Paul, and it certainly is modeled in this particular one here, is that Paul will set out in the first part of the letter basically revealing what he's going to be talking about throughout the rest of the letter. We are coming to the end of this opening section there at the bottom of verse 23, and what we will see is all the themes that are going to be teased out and applied further on in the book of Colossians have already been presented in the first part of the letter. So as we get ready to, de to depart and dive into the details, I want us to take just a moment to appreciate kind of the setup of what Paul has done here as he is instructing the uh, Colossians in basically how to understand the truth of the gospel and how to continue growing and bearing fruit in the gospel. So let's take a moment and let's read our passage this morning, and then we will take some time to review and we'll kind of walk through it. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that one of the convictions that we try to honor as we study the scriptures is to read it first as his story, God's story. Secondly, as their story, which is the story of Israel, which is by far the bulk of the book is, direct, is his story and their story. It doesn't mean that it doesn't have relevance to us, but it does mean that we read it discerningly because we recognize it's not written to us, but it has been passed down for us. And so we want, to we want to respect that distinction so that we can come a little closer to maybe understanding the spirit of what's being written here. And so we're going to look at his story and their story. Our review will be about the their story because once he, when he says, once you were alienated and hostile in minds as expressed by your evil actions, I might deduce from that that that's true of me. And maybe in principle that is true of me. And maybe it was true of you. And maybe it was true of everyone. I don't know. But what I do know is that in the text, he's not writing a universal letter. He's writing a letter specifically for the Colossians. So we want to listen to it in such a way that we would come closer to understanding what the Colossians would have heard. Then we are equipped to say, what does this mean for our story and my story? But we're going to do it from that vantage point. So we're not going to jump into reading ourselves into this passage, which most people are taught to read the Bible in a very privatized manner. And so when we open the book of the Bible, when we say, when we see the word you, we read ourselves into the story. But with very, very few exceptions, rarely is the word you talking about anyone living in modern times. It was actually addressed to someone else. Now, there are a few places like when Jesus in John 17 prays for those who will believe on account of their testimony, guess what? You were written into the Bible there. Jesus was interceding for you because eventually you were going to be a generation that was going to respond to the truth because of the testimony uh, long ago of the apostles. So I'm not saying we're never in there, but we are rarely in there. Uh, now, again, that doesn't mean that we don't take the truth that's being proclaimed and apply it to our life and wrestle with how that applies to our life. But my point is, in order 
order to really appreciate what's being said, you've got to enter into the audience relevancy of the text. And so here, when we read this, here's what's going on. And the reason why this is specifically important is because unlike, I guess maybe we did some of this in Galatians, but, but this is one of those letters that's specifically written to, to formerly pagan Gentile Christians who are trying to understand what it means to now be brought into this redemptive story that historically had only been uh, uh, told through the nation of Israel. And now there's this, there, there's, this, uh, there's this conflict taking place, which we saw quite a bit in the book of Acts, where the early church is trying to understand what, it, what does it mean for historically the covenant promise-bearing people of God to now have their doors wide open to where anybody can, can, can come in and be part of the worldwide community of the promise-bearing people of God. And they scratch their heads because uh, uh, th- there was a, a sense of Ex, uh, exclusivity that had developed over time. And here you've got Paul preaching a message of inclusivity and it's causing a lot of conflict. And if you're, you know, have you ever, uh, you know, I'm sure we've all experienced having a disagreement with someone else. Adam, I need to talk to you. I, I, I'm, I'm something you said, something you did uh, offended me, or I got a call from Summer. That happens more often, frequently. And, uh, and so maybe we have this engagement and this conflict. So we've all experienced that. But have you ever been in a situation where two people are arguing right or wrong perspectives about you? You ever overheard one of those? Ever had one of those things where people are having a discussion as though you're not standing right there in the room with them? That's got to be how these pagan Gentile Christians had to feel. Because in the book of Acts, they're not prioritized as part of the conversation at the table. They're just being talked about, and their, their, their future is being wrestled with, and, and they're trying to determine of what it looks like to have this, uh, to move from an ethnocentric um, faith to an ethno-inclusive faith. And so they, they struggle with that. So when Paul is writing to Colossians, he's, he's writing to a church, a group of people that he actually hasn't met. He's only heard about them, and based on what he's heard about them, he's been inspired to write and encourage and explain and to instruct. And so here what we have in verses 1 through 8 is is this opening part of the letter where Paul rejoices and gives thanks that the Colossians are producing the intended fruit of believing the gospel, which is an observable lifestyle characterized by love. That's what he celebrates in verses 1 through 8. We've heard about your faith, and what's more, we've heard about your love for all the saints. Your loving reputation precedes you, and when I heard about the reputation of love, I knew that that could only come from a legitimate uh, 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 fruit of trusting in the gospel. And so I believe that you believe the gospel because I can see love in your life. That's the logic of verses 1 through 8. That's what he celebrates, and so that's why he's written to them. Then in 9 through 14, we get through a part where Paul is then praying for the Colossians. And Paul prays that the Colossians will continue to bear fruit in every good work and that they would increasingly know God better. Now, I would submit this is one of those things that was instruction for their story, but it speaks to a universal truth which is, it's a revelation of the fruit that the gospel is intended to bear in the life of the believing individual and the believing community. And what he says is what you should expect is not a static religious experience, but one that is constantly undergoing change and transformation. Because if you're bearing fruit, my prayer is that you'll bear even more of it. 
And if the answer to that comes about and we hear reports that you're becoming even increasing in number, becoming more loving, my response to that is not to take a break, but to pray that you'll, incur, that you'll experience even more fruit being born. He also says, so the expected outcome of the gospel over a, life, a long term of a lifestyle ought to be increasingly bearing the fruit of love that is physically manifested and tangibly seen by other people because it's in your actions and your attitudes. But he also says this, when you come to faith, you in no way have all the awareness and knowledge of God that you're going to have. Your understanding of God should be constantly moving through growth and evolutions. If you feel the exact same convictions that you felt 15 years ago, I would suggest that you consider whether or not you have appropriately grown the way the Spirit intends. Because what happens is our thoughts and our understanding are always expanding and changing. Why? Because the expected fruit of the gospel over a lifetime should be an increasing understanding of what God is like, that you would come to know him better. And Paul celebrates that and tells them to expect that, and that's what he's praying for. He also reminds them that they have been delivered from a kingdom of darkness and have been brought into a kingdom of light. And, and if I can just speak uh, vulnerable and pastorally here, I, I will say, I, I know, I, I have lots of private conversations. I do some public confession. Some say, pastor, that's very encouraging. Other people pull me aside and say, you're confessing too much and I'm uncomfortable. So I'm trying to always kind of strike that balance. Uh, but uh, but, but I, I know that when I get excited or passionate or have emotion about an idea, that, that sometimes in my zeal, I can communicate in an imbalanced way. And, and what I want to say before the congregation that I belong to and that I'm called first and foremost to serve, not tell you what to do and not tell you what to think, the first calling on my life is to recognize I belong to you and my responsibility is to serve you under the faithfulness of my discipleship to Jesus. And so I will say sometimes I get overzealous and I miscommunicate. My point is this, if when we sit around and talk about the gospel, we discern the difference between talking of using biblical language about the gospel and using man-created language that flows out of our systematic theology or denominational preferences, I think it's important for us to understand that. And so my issue with saying that the gospel is about coming forward, saying a prayer so that you can know that you, if you die tonight, you'll go to heaven, my issue with that is not that I don't like that idea, I love the idea, you know? I've never had a time when I've said, I have as much money as I need to have. I haven't ever had a time where I said, I have as much health as I need to have. And I've never had a time where I've looked myself in the mirror and said, yeah, this is the sexiest I'm ever going to be. I fear that time has passed me, but I don't ever think about that. So the idea that I'll go somewhere with a heavenly body and not have to pay bills and I'll have a big mansion with a great big television and, and that I'll be able to eat whatever I want because there's lots and lots of food in my father's house, but I won't get sick, unhealthy, and obese. I'm all for that. I, I in no way want to hinder the idea that one of these days I'll be free from all this nonsense and I'll just be as sexy and happy as I can be. I, I am looking forward to that. My issue is, though, if we're going to ground our faith in the narrative of the scriptures, we have to admit to ourselves, guys, it's not in there. That is not the way the New Testament talks about the gospel. It's not. 
So my desire is for us to be rooted in the scriptures. So instead of talking about where are you going to go after you die, heaven or hell, we say, which kingdom? Which kingdom are you serving today? Are you in bondage to the kingdom of darkness? Or are you consciously liberated and serving your Lord who is the king of the domain of light? That's how we should talk about our faith. Not, hey, when did you get saved? But what did the Holy Spirit teach you yesterday? What did the Holy Spirit teach you last week? These are the kinds of conversations that we should be having together in the context of community. So I am not just trying to bait and switch you and say, go from one ideology to the other. What I'm saying, let's wrestle together and see how closely we can come to being faithful to what we see here in the scriptures. And this is what Jesus, that Paul celebrates here, and then it leads us to this next section, with verses 15 through 20, which are, I would submit, some of the most important sections in the entire Bible and some of the most important section in the New Testament, and certainly the heart of the book of Colossians. It's found in Colossians 15 through 20, where Paul celebrates and makes it unmistakably clear. Your faith is not about following this sin and not following this sin, believing this thing, not believing this thing, about whether or not you go to heaven or you go to hell. Guess who was at the center of all of those considerations? You were and I was. That is not at the center of Christianity. Christianity is about the supremacy of Christ. That is the beginning point. That's the substance of it. And so this particular section of Scripture contributes to our Christian, historically, the Christian conversation known as theology, which is just the growing body of knowledge from one generation to the next. As, as individuals, we've gotten to know God and we've gotten to know God better and better as Paul prays. But what you see historically as a people of faith, we've also grown in our understanding what God was like from one generation to the next. And this particular part of scripture contributes to the the historical theological conversation known as Christology. That's your $50 word for the day. Uh, Drop it when you're at Papa's today. Um, and so, so it's, it's Christology. And what that is, it's the scriptures that bear witness to the mystery of who Christ is. And from that, we've had a theological discussion where we've developed dogma, orthodoxy, and doctrines about the common ways that the church have, has grown into learning how to understand and talk about Christ. But remember, our organized systematic theological doctrines are penned by the hand of man. They are deductions of what they see in the scripture, so I'm not saying that they're false, but they're pinned by the hand of man. They are not in the same level of authority as scripture. And the problem is our systematic theology has a lot more uh, um, neat lines around it and a lot less tension and mystery than the scriptures have. And what I would suggest is be very cautious about trading your all of the mystery of truth revealed in the scriptures for the certainty of some ideological system that by its nature has to shrink the truth of what it's trying to articulate. So we want to be cautious of that and understand that there's a difference. Because here what Paul says is he emphasizes that the Christian faith is about Christ. 
He celebrates the fact that Christ is supreme in creation by virtue of being the creator. So what he's doing here is he's, he's trying to help them understand this is how you work into this redemptive story that began with Israel. Israel has always celebrated that Yahweh was the creator of the world, of the heavens and the earth. But what is being revealed is, is that Christ is the agent of creation. It was, everything created was created uh, by him, through him, and for him. And so he's broadening this specifically uh, Jewish story to encompass the totality of the entire world. And so that's why he's emphasizing Christ is the one who created you. You are the, uh, Christ is the reason you were created, and Christ is the one who continues to sustain you. So he emphasizes that the, it's about Christ, that Christ is supreme in creation by virtue of being the creator, and uh, also, he celebrates that Christ is supreme in the church because he is the creator of new creation. So, he's the creator in creation, but what the revelation of the New Testament is, he's also the creator of new creation, which is a new humanity. A new humanity has been re that has been redeemed from sin and that God has reconciled to himself through Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That's what Paul celebrates in those verses. And then that brings us to the verses that we're at today. He then begins to talk to the Colossians and, and begin to explain to them how they have become part of the story. Now, I don't know about you. I really don't like shopping malls. Uh, at one point, I think that I did. Like, I, it seems like I was thinking about this this week, that there was a time in my life that I remembered like a, a weekend celebration or a special trip always included the mall. And... Uh, and, 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 and I think at some time I enjoyed that. And I've always had a, 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 an appreciation for the cultural sophistication of the food court. You know, it's international, right? It's like a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a buffet. I mean, that's the piazza. That's where cultures come together to be one. Um, so I still have an appreciation for the varieties of food court. But, um, but I really don't like them. And my family enjoyed going to a mall down in Texas that really is like the ninth circle of hell because it is a circle. You have to proactively try to get out of it because if you just walk straight, you'll just walk around in infinity until you die of too much TCBY yogurt. And so, and so I, I don't really particularly enjoy that, but what I always liked is whenever it was time to go and we had to meet somewhere, I rarely knew where I was. Well, what I could do is that at every, every so often, there's this great big uh, display that has a map of the mall. And so I'm gonna walk up, and I'm not looking to where um, Dillard's or Spencer's gifts are. I'm looking to find one little set of instructions. It's a little dot. You know what that dot says? You are here. It's the very first thing that has to be determined in order to get where you want to be. Here's what's offensive, and we don't talk a lot about, about the narrative of Scripture. If you look at Scripture as a map of the history of redemption, you're going to go up to that as a Gentile, and you're not going to find a spot on it that says you were here. Wasn't there. This is why, as I was thinking about this, I've kind of began to think about the book of Colossians like a treasure map where Paul is basically going to tell you where you are, where you were, and where you are, and where you're going. 
And he's going to say, here's the directions. Here's where you'll find the treasure. And then he's going to say, let me give you a set of instructions about what your life is going to look like after it's transformed because you found the treasure. Now, in the beginning of redemptive history, the Colossians don't get to be on the map. But guess what Paul is doing in Colossians? He's bringing out a new map of redemptive history. And it's a whole lot bigger than the former map that they were operating off of. And guess what? The Colossians get to go up to that map and they're gonna find a spot just for them that says, you are here. You have entered into the narrative that's being told here. And here's, and I love this little section of, of the letter of Colossians because it's organized very nicely. Basically, the, th- the, 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 the phrases, the themes that turn through this section is, you once were, but now, if indeed. You once were, but now, if indeed. He literally says, this is your past, this is your present, and this is where you can expect to go, providing you continue to stay faithful to particular conditions. And I know that evangelical Protestants that have been hammered justification by faith have been told that any talk of effort or condition is legalism and compromise. Well, I am sorry, but... Paul wrote before the Protestant Reformation. He was not having the same issues and struggles that the Protestant reformers were having. So that's not what he's talking about. And guess what? In Paul's gospel, yeah, it's not unconditional experience. There are conditions that, choices that you make that either move you into flourishing into shalom or creating obstacles to your experience of shalom. And we make those choices every day. So you once were, but now, if indeed... So, verse 21, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, and that was expressed in your evil actions. So, here's the descriptions of their past. You were alienated, hostile, and evil. Alienated, hostile, and evil. Now, somebody said go for it, so it's their fault. Um, but this is, this is relevant because what our minds want to do is when we read a word like alienation, we want to go towards system, what did systematic theology and church doctrine teach me about what that word means? And so what we might want to do is, oh, this is uh, Paul's articulating the doctrine of the fall of man. When man, Adam and Eve chose to disobey and they took the fruit and then they were cut off from the gar- garden and thus uh, humans are existentially alienated from God. Well, look, that's, That's a coffee and a Reuben conversation for us to have, no doubt. However, again, this is why we want to ask what it means for his story and their story. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Paul's not articulating a philosophical, theological, existential doctrine. What he's saying is very true, that up until this point in redemptive history, there has been an ethnocentric, covenant, promise-bearing people of God known as Israel. And you are Colossians, you are Gentiles, you were born and raised, cut off from the commonwealth of Israel, who had been given the covenant and the promises, and through whom every family on the face of the earth was intended to be blessed. This is the calling of Israel when they're they're being formed in their infancy through the calling of Abram. This is what God tells him. He repeats it again throughout the book of Genesis. Um, And so literally the... Colossians were pagans. They weren't part of that. 
They literally were alienated from that expression of God's redemptive plan throughout the world. And so this is part of the tension because a faithful Jew would have been taught that. But now they're being told that is no longer true. It used to be true. It's no longer true. Now what is true is this. Those pagans are not alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. I have grafted them into the spiritual commonwealth of Israel, known as the remnant that have always been faithful from one generation to the next. And that's what Paul is celebrating here. Now, you can have questions about that. You can ponder about that. You're even free to disagree with that. But all I'm saying is that is most likely what Paul's referring to when he says this. You were alienated, you were hostile, and you were evil because identity leads to a particular way of thinking. A particular way of thinking leads to a particular way of behaving. Now, I want you to see how this is outlined very clearly just even in this verse. Uh, alienated, hostile, and evil because a gospel that only addresses behavior, the third tier, is never going to have long-term transformation. The gospel goes not to the fruit of the problem, but the root of the problem. The fruit might be evil behavior, but the root is an identity. And God has transformed that identity. But until they believe that, they cannot change the way they think and therefore can't out-discipline their toxic thinking. Won't happen. However, something can happen to them and they can be rescued from this plight. So once you were, but then look at verse 22, but now, but now, something has changed. Now, Listen, for self-improvement spirituality, this is going to be offensive because Paul's not going to say you were once this and then you read uh, Tony Robbins and Stephen Covey and now you're this. Good job, guys. No, not, there is a place where one might read Stephen Covey or whatever, but it's not here because something happens to them that rescues them. They are not smart enough that they figure out how to rescue themselves. That's, they are passive in their salvation and they are passive in their deliverance. Here's what Paul says. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So once you were, but now you are reconciled. So they go from being characterized as alienated, hostile, and evil to holy, faultless, and blameless. He's still talking about what they've achieved because of what Christ has done, not because of their growth and maturity. He's saying, your identity is different. And when God, when you stand before the maker of heaven and earth and the judge, he doesn't see you as alienated, uh, hostile, and evil. What does he see? Holy, faultless, and blameless because of what Christ has done. So notice that the, that, that the Colossians have moved from this place of hostility to a place of blamelessness. Now, oh man, we don't have so much time. I, I won't do this too much, but I just think, find this fascinating. Do you see what was reversed there? Because in Genesis chapter three, the story begins with Adam and Eve. It's innocent, faultless, and blameless. And by the end of the story, they are alienated, hostile, and evil. Do you see that? So that means existentially the gospel is not rooted in solving a religious problem, but humanity's existential crisis. That's what the gospel speaks to. Because 
Genesis 3, they begin in innocence and they end in wickedness. In Colossians 1, they begin in wickedness and they end in innocence. Why? Because of what the second Adam accomplished that reversed the consequences of what the first Adam accomplished. And so that's kind of the language of this gospel that comes out of the scripture. The basis of the new life of the Colossians is this. They were reconciled to God by the physical death of Christ on the cross. They believed, but that, so that was the first part. But the second part is this. They actually believed that they were reconciled to God by the physical death of Christ on the cross. And listen, those two ideas are different. They're separate, and they don't accomplish the same thing. What Christ has done has no experiential bearing on my life if I refuse to believe it. The, the door that opens up the possibility of actually enjoying and experiencing the accomplishments of Christ on the cross is my willingness to believe that it's true. And I'm not talking about what I'm willing to say that's true up here as if I'm passing a Sunday school test because my friends, at the end of the day, your heart knows what you really believe and what you don't. And you are gonna be driven not by what you confess that you believe, but what you actually believe. So if you believe in a God who forgives you and sees you blameless up here, but in your heart you believe in a God that's either mad or sad or disappointed with you, that's the conviction that's going to drive your actions and belief system, not this one. And so, so they actually believed that they were reconciled. That's why to have faith in the gospel is to actually believe that one has been reconciled to God and to therefore choose to live as a forgiven and redeemed human. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about believing the gospel, having faith in the gospel. It's to not only say that it's true, but to have the audacity to believe as though it's true. To have the audacity to stare shame and fear in the face and say, get thee behind me, Satan. You have no place here. Not because of my cleverness and not because of my morality, but because I stand in covered in the work and the blood and the righteousness of a Savior that loved me unto death. That's the hope of the gospel. And if you believe that, it'll start to change the way you think about yourself and everybody else around you. So then he ends with this. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, this gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, what Paul is celebrating here, we just don't have time to go into all these ideas. I've got to be wise and discerning, but what I love about this is I don't think that Paul literally believed that every individual under creation has heard the gospel, but what he's saying is this, now that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles in the Gentile mission, now the gospel is working its way throughout all of creation from one generation to the next because this thing has, is leaving the building. Uh, so the redemptive accomplishments of Christ's death on the cross that the Colossians are enjoying are forever established and irreversible. The fact, okay, or the principle of their deliverance. The Colossians' ongoing experience of the accomplishments of Christ's death on the cross, however, is dependent upon their continuing to live from the hope that this is true. Is it wrong for a Christian to suffer with cynicism and doubt and questioning their faith? Absolutely not. In fact, 
There's a lot of really good psalms that were recorded in the eternal annuals of Scripture that deal with the fact that the author wasn't feeling great about God in the life of faith. They were wrestling with their skepticism, their cynicism, their despair. But we cannot stay in cynicism and despair and apathy if we want to continue to flourish in the shalom that the gospel brings. That season has to be worked through. Whether that's a two-year season or a two-month season, you have to keep engaging and processing and working through it because to replace hope with skepticism will have long-term consequences on my choices and on my relationships. And so, so Paul says the key to this growth is you've got to continue to believe what you already believe. The only way that the Colossians will remain grounded and steadfast, which is what he says, is by the refusal to, sh refusal to shift away from the hope that the gospel awakened in them whenever they believed. That hope has to be a fire that you would continually stoke. And it may get down to an ember. It may get down to mostly ash and a few bits of smoke, but you've got to keep stoking that thing. And you've got to cooperate with the way that the Holy Spirit has given us gifts that allow us to keep that, that, that fire aflame. And you've got to keep stoking it because it is, it is that hope that comes from really trusting what Jesus has done and who Jesus has made you to be that fuels and animates your work of the gospel and your ongoing growth and experiencing shalom throughout your lifetime. And, uh, and so he calls for that cooperation. So, as in summary... As we look at this as his story, their story, our story, and my story, we have to remember that there are cultural instructions in the New Testament and in the Old Testament. Those cultural instructions are not for all people in all places at all times. And I had lists of examples of where we are comfortable dismissing some of those cultural instructions, but we don't have time to go into that. Just to say, when we read the scripture, there are some instructions of the scripture that we all kind of had this understanding aren't binding to us. <laughs> Here's an example of one for contemporary evangelicals in America. One time, a man went to Jesus and says, how can I be saved? And his reply on how this man could save his soul is to relinquish all uh, personal property rights, to let those go, cash them in, liquidate them, give them to those who are more needy than himself, and then follow Jesus. But I'm pretty sure we would all agree, however we come to the rationale of the conclusion, eh, that's probably not meant for us. Now, no, we just need to say the sinner's prayer. It's a lot better day. You don't have to give up your spending habits. You just got to say the sinner's prayer, right? Woo! Glad Jesus didn't say that to me. Uh, anyway, I won't go on about that. But there are things like that that we are quite comfortable saying, oh, that's not really something that we have to submit to. But now, I'm mocking it a little bit, but I'm also affirming it because the truth is there are culturally conditioned instructions in the Scripture. So it takes the learning and the community of faith that we work together to discern what the Spirit is saying through the spirit of the letter, uh, through the spirit of what's written, not the letter of what's written. Um, and so we ask ourselves, when we jump from their story to our story, what's culturally conditioned and what is a universal truth? I suggest to you this morning, my friends, what we just talked about in the life of the Colossian Gentiles is a universal truth, not simply a cultural truth. The text celebrates a universal truth. The Colossians were once alienated from the promise-bearing people of God known as Israel. 
Israel's Messiah's work of redemption, however, was not intended to be ethnocentric, but extends to the whole of humanity. This is what Paul is celebrating, is that the gospel is not exclusive, it is radically, and some might say offensively, inclusive. By trusting this message, the pagan Colossians have now become members of the promise-bearing community of God. They've been, in the language of Paul in Romans, they've been grafted in. The Colossians will continue to be holy, faultless, and blameless before God as they continue to live from the hope that they have been presented to God as holy, faultless, and blameless because of the work of Christ on the cross. Because if that is not the foundation of my radical acceptance before the divine, so much so that he can call me faultless and blameless when people who live with me certainly wouldn't use those words to describe me, is because I know it's grounded not on what I have earned, but on what he has accomplished. That's why it can be true, and I'd be in a season where it not look true. But when I'm in a season where it doesn't look true, where am I going to put my faith? In what I can see, or in what I trust to be true. Now that makes a tremendous difference because trying to overcome, say, a, 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 a besetting sin or a neuroses or a habitual uh, uh, destructive behavior, as long as you believe that's who you are, you may have periods of time where you have success, but you'll always move back to the common denominator of who you think we are. That's why improvement doesn't work. But living into the truth of your transformed self does work. It's because I believe that even though what I see doesn't always prove it, that I trust Christ's transformation in my soul, that he's made me something that I think that I am or ever thought that I could be. And if I will continue in faith, I will see that fruit being born in my life. And so, and so this, is, this, is, this is what um, he's celebrating about the Colossians. But I would say, what is true of the Colossian pagans is also true of Oklahoma pagans. Paul is celebrating the universal truth about the scope and the uncontested accomplishment of Christ on the cross, which is the message of the gospel. Now, the way we participate in this universal blessing is by believing that it's true. This is what we mean by believing the gospel. This is, at the end of the day, what we mean by justification by faith. I'm justified because I trust that Christ has justified me. That's all that it means. So the way I participate is in believing that it's actually true. If, 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 if any of us are still living from an identity of alienation, then I would implore you, trust the message of the gospel. And if you feel alienated from God because you've never pursued a religious life, well, today, you, all of that can change if you will trust the message of the gospel. And if you thought you were serving Christ, but you're coming to the frightening revelation that you've been serving religion for the past 30 years, and you're just as much in bondage and despair as those without Christ, I implore you, trust the message of the gospel. It is the key not only to beginning in salvation, but to sustaining your pursuit of salvation and to experiencing the fruit of your salvation being born. Trust the message of the gospel. If, however, that is not your struggle, 
You do trust in that for yourself, but you've yet to make the connection between what it means to be a recipient of the work of Christ and then be called to be part of his body that is continuing his work. Then then you also need to take some time for self-reflection. And I would say that if you're bearing the fruit of love, then I implore you to seek the Spirit and identify how He is calling you to participate in the work of the gospel. Participating in the work of the gospel is how we tangibly practice loving our neighbor as ourselves. And I know that we prefer to interpret those instructions as the least common denominator, which means I don't throw my beer cans in my neighbor's front yard. But it really means something way more than that. It's not about the, it is about understanding that I am called to be a vessel through which God's truth of reconciliation becomes tangibly experienced and extended to those who don't know him. And that's the call. And if I don't give myself to that, then I'm gonna start to lose passion for my pursuit of Jesus. The first step in moving toward ministry and mission is to become certain about the nature of the God whom you represent. And this is the question that you have to ask. Is he angry with humanity or is he reconciled to humanity? You have to settle that on both a theological, intellectual, but also on a very deep existential level. Is God postured toward with hostility and anger or is he reconciled to humanity? You have got to answer that question for yourself existentially, and you have to be assured of it theologically before you can adequately represent the God, the God that we're called to represent. The most effective way to become a witness to Christ is to live as a forgiven person who is progressively being liberated from shame and fear. Because, my friends, this is the goal. The first order of business for the follower of Jesus is to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit so that he or she is perfected in love. And this is where we're going to land today because this is ultimately the goal of our, of, our, of our experience of the gospel isn't limited to changing our beliefs or changing our behavior. Our faith is intended to drive out fear as we are perfected in love. I don't know, that sounds kind of hippie, touchy-feely, Artie. I understand your struggle. So let's make sure that that idea is in Scripture. So turn with me or look on the overhead, and let's end by looking at 1 John 4, 17 through 19 as an understanding of what the goal of all of this is. In this, love is made complete with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because, he, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. And we love because he first loved us. So the goal of this is to be free of the fear and be perfected in love. That experience will have an impact on your lifestyle choices beyond what disciplined morality can ever, ever give you. But we have to recognize that's the invitation. It always puzzles me 
when Christians want to celebrate the fact that people should fear God. And I understand that is a statement that is made in, in the Proverbs, in the Old, Old Covenant Scriptures, and we can have a dialogue about that. But what I don't understand is, I just want to say, have you read First John? Have you read it? Because whatever you understand about fearing God, the final word on that is that Jesus came to deliver us from that fear. Why? Because he came to proclaim, because of my work of suffering, you do not have to fear judgment and punishment. Therefore, you are free to not fear your Savior. You're free to be loved by him and love him in return. And in that process, as you are systematically delivered from your fear and shame by believing that this is true, your thinking will change and your actions will change, and then you will be an incarnated expression of love, perfected and free of fear, so that you can go forth and be the body of Christ and bring that liberty 